This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and on today's show... This year marks 90 years since Virginia Woolf published A Room of One's Own, a work that foreshadowed both second and third wave feminism. Virginia Woolf's work still holds a lot that remains sadly relevant to those on the margins and a reminder that to write fiction you need both money and a room of your own. This influential work is explored in a sentient theatre production at 45 Downstairs, running from the 17th to the 28th of July. And I'll be joined very, very soon by producer and performer Anna Kennedy and cast member Marissa O'Reilly. But coming up next, Amra Pajalic explores growing up in a Bosnian-Australian family, straddling cultures, her father's terminal illness and a dawning understanding of her mother's struggles with bipolar, as well as a stint uh, living with her strict grandparents in Bosnia before the genocidal war that changes everything and makes going back to her mother's birthplace impossible. It's all in a memoir aptly titled Things Nobody Knows But Me. And Amara Pajalic joins me to discuss her book and the experiences that shaped it very, very soon. Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Amara Pajalic's childhood often straddled complicated territory. Her mother was warm and loving, but would dive into manic episodes. Her father, whose temper made her mother's life a real torment, died young, and the family were often split between Australia and Bosnia, where Amara and her brother spent 18 months living with her strict grandparents before the war that changed everything. Amara explores her early life and her relationship with her mother in a new memoir called Things Nobody Knows But Me. Amara, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is uh, an incredibly personal memoir and it sort of covers a period of life uh, between, I think, the ages of you, you're about four years old till around the age of 19. But so much happens in that time and all of it is, you know, extraordinarily huge uh, life events uh, that you cover with this quite, you know, you know, a warm sort of gaze, uh, even though, you know, a lot of what you describe is objectively quite harrowing. Um, I really want to talk to you a bit about, uh, you know, how you came to write this memoir in the first place. It's so funny that you talk about all the big life events because when you're growing up with this, you just think it's normal. It's only when I started to talking to other people and sort of um, my peers and talking about some of the things that happened to me and their facial expressions gave away the um, thought that, oh, this is not normal. And it made me start thinking, oh, this is a bit extraordinary and a bit um, different to what a lot of people go through. Um, I I just always wanted to, like, I've been writing this story in so many different ways pretty much my whole life because I think I needed to find a way to deal with it, to process it myself. My first attempt was when I was doing a writing course, um, a Diploma of Professional Writing and Editing, and I titled The Manuscript Sins of the Mother, a little bit judgmental. (laughs) I was 20. Yeah. um, Very much into shades of black and white. 
um, I got a C for that when I submitted it for the subject and I went, hmm, I'm going to put that aside. And then I started writing um, sort of things that happened to me and it ended up being a young adult novel and I'd never really tried to write young adult. I was just writing what I wanted to write Um, and that was published as The Good Daughter and I thought, okay, that's it. I've done it. I've dealt with this story. I've dealt with this idea of growing up with a mother who suffers from bipolar, all the weird things that happen as a result of that when you don't have a stable parent. I'm done. I'm moving on. And then I had my daughter when I was 31. And I was in this privileged position of um, I'd been with my husband for 12 years, um, child, very wanted. You know, I was trying for a while to fall pregnant and I was desperate to fall pregnant. Um, I had a support system where I had friends who were also um, going through and having babies at the same time. And then at 10 months, I got postnatal depression and it just knocked me. And I just had this moment, because um, after I gave birth, I was sort of going through PTSD a bit where I was remembering all these things and I was looking at my baby and going, how could my mother do these things to me when I love my daughter so much? Um, so again, a little bit judgmental. And then when I had the postnatal depression and I saw how hard it made for me to be a parent, to be present, to just, you know, live in a sense because I couldn't get out of bed for a week, um, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, my mother was 15 years old when she got married. She was 16 when she had my sister. She ended up in a, a mental hospital and was subjected to electric shock therapy because that was the treatment at the time. People, you know, didn't know. Um and she suffered so much throughout her life and it just made me look at her in a very empathetic light and a light that I hadn't um, looked at her before then. And so I started writing, but I was really scared of writing a memoir. It is really, really hard. Um, and so at first I tricked myself. It's like I'm not writing a memoir. I'm just writing this particular memoir piece. And then I got that published in Etching's Journal and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that memoir piece worked. Hmm. As so I started working on a few others and I got them published in um, anthologies and then I was like, oh, I think I'm working on a book now. Um, and I just had to sort of trick myself. And I keep doing that. Every project that I do, I'm like, oh, this is the story and then it changes into something else. Um, so I had to do it in very small chunks and it took a very, very, very long time. Um, and there was a lot of trauma in terms of some of the chapters that I had to write and reliving some of the things that I had to do but it was also cathartic like now it's all there it's between the pages I feel like I've finally hopefully fingers crossed exercised the ghosts and that period of my life. This is a question that I wouldn't mind you know exploring given you have just you know described it in the way that you have and that is that is there a catharsis in in putting things down on paper and putting them out in the world because I guess you know there's uh, there's several schools of thought on how this all works but why do you feel as though kind of uh, putting something in writing and giving it to others to read is something that that gives you a sense of of kind of letting it go? Well, for me, during the process of writing, it almost felt like my memories were fading. By putting them down and, and, you know, recording them, it just made the episodes just that little bit less um, full of emotion and, and, you know, I I could put them in the past a little bit more. But I also found writing this book because my original version of this book I've written a few versions of this book um but in my original version it was writing it from my mum's point of view and so I actually 
talking to her and um, finding out what was happening to her at certain periods of my life, it really gave me a different perspective because as a child you're sort of caught up in the suffering that you're going through and the things that you're going through. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about the sections of the book um, when we're in Bosnia and I wasn't living with my mother and I was under the care of my grandparents who, they gave me a childhood in a sense that I didn't have up until then because um, I was free of the burden. But on the other hand, they were very, very strict and it created a lot of um, tension. And I judged her so much for sort of leaving us with um, my grandparents and then coming back to Australia with my stepfather and, you know, abandoning us. And she didn't, she couldn't, um, we didn't want to go and also my grandparents were sort of stopping her from taking us. Um, but she was suffering so much in the hospital and was getting to the point where, because her treatment over there was just barbaric, that she couldn't um, live because she, she, she was actually contemplating suicide. It's a, a really um, an amazing kind of uh, book in a sense that you're looking at this really with you know, the eyes of an adult. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of the times, I guess, when people are writing memoir about their childhood, they are writing it with that sort of, you know, with the, the framework and the kind of clarity of a of an adult uh, looking down on a, a childhood. And you've sort of chosen a few moments throughout the book to sort of, you know, to bring us into the present a little bit or into your adult mind. But a lot of the time you are very much kind of almost sitting in the in the in the kind of mind of that child mm. to a certain extent what kind of sleight of hand do you use to sort of achieve that um, and how you know do you feel as though when you're writing it you've sort of entered that childhood state mm. again um, and are you are those kind of adult moments uh, the acts of rewriting or is it very much a mix of both um I was having a conversation with someone recently and I was like, you know, we sort of keep coming back to young adult voice and I think it's something about going through those times um, and just, you know, experiencing these things that I, I keep w wanting to relive it in a sense in a different way and that's the voice that comes back. And so when I was writing it, I actually was planning on stopping it at um, 17 when um, I found out what my mother, what the mental condition was because I grew up. Um, just being told she has a nervous breakdown. She didn't know what the name of her illness was, that she was a bipolar sufferer. And as a result, we didn't sort of have clarity around symptoms and effective um, treatment. And so I was planning on stopping it at 17. And so I was like, I'm going to keep it in that um, young adult point of view and that, that young point of view. And then I was like, well, I'm in my 40s now. Um, there's a lot of things that have happened and I'm going to go out there and promote the book and people will be like, hmm. Um, and so I felt like I needed to transition the reader a little bit to me as an adult and my adult life and bring it to some sort of a close because um, I also wasn't sure how to end it. I had the whole, the, what the ending was ended up being the prologue and then I'm like, oh, I don't have an ending now. <laughs> um, and I was actually really struggling with the ending um, and then I had this conversation with my daughter and my grandparents, uh, with my um, her grandparents, my, my parents, and I was like, that's the ending. I've got it. <coughs> I can bookmark that whole phase. <coughs> So um, the, so I think also along the way then I had to transition a little bit the um, adult voice and show a little bit more of, of who I am in order to bring the reader to that ending. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Amra Bajalic about her memoir, Things Nobody Knows But Me. 
you really have covered a lot of territory by the time you come to, uh, you know, really talk about the effects of the, the you know, Bosnian war um, on your family in particular. Obviously, you had spent uh, not a significant amount of time living in Bosnia with your grandparents before the devastating genocidal conflict. Um, and obviously, even though your your immediate family weren't there at the time, you had extended family there... You, this is really very much your descriptions of these I think are all the more powerful for the lightness of touch in, in terms of how you know how much you go into it and really you don't go into it a great deal but the details that you do share are frankly horrific uh, and I am I'm sort of really considering your decisions around that because it is a, a section that you know is incredibly powerful um, there is an implicit sort of you know trauma that that comes with that um, and I'm wondering what were your decisions to sort of cover it in this way and and you know what what kinds of you know of work went into that I guess a lot. This is the short version. This novel, um, sorry, this memoir was first 120,000 words and then I culled it down to 90,000 words and so it's just been a, a process of culling and it actually got to the point where I was like, I don't know what's in there anymore. And so I actually had a lot more of um, my young adult self at high school and some of the things that were going on there. Um, but when you're writing a memoir, you sort of have to decide what is the lens um, that you're focusing on because, you know, when you're looking at your life, there's always so many things that can be covered. And because the lens was always my mother, um, her uh, mental condition and the effect of that on my life, when I was talking about the war, I had to focus it just on that aspect of it and sort of um, explore the stigma that existed in the community. And the cha- uh, I think it's like I ended up getting it down to um, one paragraph, sort of giving a recap of the war for people who don't know. And that took like three weeks um, because trying to compress something so complex and so complicated into a little tiny overview just to set the context for the story that I was telling, which was around um, the fact that we grew up in Australia without any family. And after the war, my whole um, maternal side of the family came to Australia. And the diaspora that came um, were people who you know, grew up under communist Yugoslavia, didn't know how to deal with people who were different because of the way um, that they were shunned and ostracised. And the difficulty that my mother went through where um, people were sort of struggling to know how to behave around her um, and fearing her in a sense and, and the psychological effect that it had on her. It's a really, I mean, your descriptions of really the complication of culture as well because you, you know, have spent a significant amount of your life obviously in Australia, you're an Australian and um, but at the same time have strong ties uh, with Bosnia through your extended family but then for this, you know, essentially the world as they knew it to have disappeared uh, and then this added level of like a, you know, a new type of community that again you're not strictly a part of. It's a really beautiful, in, you know, and, and heartbreaking encapsulation of, you know, I guess the complexities of, of these kind of cultural shifts. Um, I, I find also really what is really interesting here as well is how your family, you know, your stepfather in particular, uh, is a really good way into explaining some of the, you know, the ways in which uh, 
the war evolved and the the tensions that that created it uh, i'd love you to talk a little bit about that because that i think in many ways really highlighted uh what had happened in that region mm. in a way that i think i hadn't quite understood and i think that you you did a really good job of explaining that thank you it was so funny because um, when i was originally writing about my stepfather um mumbles like oh you know he's, he's a very private person and and not too include too much but then when he knew when I was writing and mum was reading certain sections of it he just told me this story he'd never sort of shared too much about um his childhood and so he shared this story about his um father being forced to um support the Ustashe um and as a result of that, when the war ended, he was marked as a collaborator. So these are the the, Cro- the Croatian right wingers that right. Um, you know that were active during the Second World War. Um, so he kind of was in between a rock and a hard place. Yes. Yeah, which is a really amazing description because the, you know a lot of the reprisals we're using you know were levied on collaborators and the complexities of the the political situation and the the violence that then was were, was perpetuated um, in the 1990s is really is described through this very human um, story of your family and and the direct impact. The other thing that came out of this that I thought uh, was you know obviously. Um, you know, it must have been quite a, an incredibly painful thing for you. Was that it seemed the first time that many Australians realised that uh, that those of Bosnian heritage were often Muslim, including you, um, and that led to a whole other kind of cultural schism in your life. Can yeah. you talk a bit about that? Well, it's like because um, I would say Yugoslav. I grew up being Yugoslav. I didn't know any different. And when you say you're Yugoslav, um, it just sort of whitewashes the culture and the religion. And then when the war happened, everyone suddenly knew that there's these different countries. There's Bosnia, mostly Muslim. There's Croatia, mostly Catholic. And Serbs, mostly Orthodox. And so suddenly when I would say Yugoslav, they're like, but no, which are you? I'm Bosnian. Oh, does that mean you're Muslim? I guess. So then why aren't you covering? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And so at a time when I was really finding my own identity and and struggling against just the normal adolescent um, difficulties, I was put in this situation of having to explain a whole political context that, to be honest, I didn't know anything about. I did not really understand um, what was happening, you know, what what the seeds of the war were. I remember my grandfather telling me stories about Ustasha and Chetniks. I didn't know who was who or what was going on and um, it was all very confusing and very strange to me. And it it really, um, you know, created this, this journey and this search um, because I tried all these different ways of explaining my identity. I'd say, I'm Australian, Bosnian. Oh, which parent is Australian? <laughs> which one's Bosnian? I just felt like I couldn't win. It was like, you know, whatever I said, the stakes would just constantly be shifting and moving. Um, and then I got to the point where I was like, I'm not saying I'm Muslim. I'm just saying I'm Bosnian. I'm not Muslim because I don't practice. Um, but people still sort of want more. Um, and so now I've decided on I'm a cultural Muslim, which means it's a part of my cultural identity, however I don't practice. Um, And just recently I was having a conversation with a friend where I said, you know, I gave my daughter a name that was an international name, um, Sophia, so that she wouldn't be caught in these, because usually it was always my name that would catch people and anyone who knows that region knows that Amra is a Bosnian name. Um, And so I gave her a name that was sort of like that she didn't have to identify as anything she she could just be her um and she was like but you know are you, if you're not muslim why and i said well 
this whole thing has led me on this journey where I really want to break the stereotypes and I want to break and I want to have this dialogue. I want to discuss what it is to, to be Muslim because people have these very rigid stereotypes and ideas of what um, it is. And yet we've got people from, you know, I think it's 60, I always forget this figure, but it's like 60 plus countries um, who are practising and you can't assume that if you meet someone who is of Lebanese background um, and, you know, that you know everything about Muslim people because there are people from Somalia, there are people from um, Sri Lanka, there's people from every part of the world and each of them have a different way of practising and then there's also the different sects and um, different types. And that's one of the reasons, like I wrote, um, sorry, I edited an anthology with a friend, Demet Divaroran, um, growing up Muslim in Australia because we really wanted to explore that and show this whole sort of difference and, and variations of. And this is part of uh, what I really love about your memoir is that you do capture this, you know, one person's experience uh, living, you know, as an Australian um, with this wonderfully rich cultural heritage as well as your personal challenges with your own family. Um, it's, a, it's a very moving book and I love books that really do show that complexity and strip back, you know, a lot of the, the stereotypes that unfortunately have been levied on people, um, you know, in the past and sadly still today. But... Um, but definitely this uh, this book, which really does feel like a genuinely a love letter to your mother. I hope uh, that's how it's been received, Amra. It has. When I gave her the first draft to read and, you know, I called her and I was like, what do you think? And she said, you really love me. <laughs> Every time I tell this story, I get emotional. She goes, you know me the best out of anyone in the world. And she goes, and you really love me. And I said, yes, I do. And so that was really powerful because... The reason I wrote the book was to honour her life because, you know, she feels this sense of um, what has she achieved and what has her life been about. Um, and it's not enough to just be a, a mother and that she's, you know, sacrificed herself for her children, which she has. So I just really wanted to honour her and, and that generation of women, um, you know, especially migrants, but women in general, who the only way they could live out their lives was through their children and that's supposed to be their legacy. And it's true, you know, that is a legacy, but motherhood is not everything. And so I just really wanted to have her legacy as um, raising awareness of bipolar and raising awareness, especially in a non-English speaking background context. And the fact that even today people don't understand and don't quite know. And um, now, you know, people have a little bit more of an understanding of, of what it means and what it does. But um, it's still very difficult because it's very difficult for people to grasp she looks, you know, normal, and I'm using the air quotations, you know, like how a normal person looks, and yet um, her brain chemistry, you know, the way that she's behaving um, is not, and she, when she's in that high, she can't tell the difference. She doesn't know. Um, she's, you know, completely lost in a, in a delusion, and people judge her for the things that she says and the things that she does. And, you know, as her daughter, I have judged her and I have struggled to accept it. Um, I've gotten more gracious about it now um, and I've gotten better at it now, um, but it is a constant sort of journey of, of acceptance um, and, you know, trying to stop your ego and trying to stop your hurt and kind of thinking about the other perspective. So it is, it is um, a constant journey, I have to say. Well, uh, Emery, you've definitely uh, set off on that journey in, in quite a, a moving and beautiful way. Um, Emery Pajalic, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Amra Bajalic uh, talking about her book, Things Nobody Knows But Me, a memoir uh, about a relationship with her mother and also her experiences growing up in Australia, bridging many cultural divides. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R and um, coming up next, we're going to be chatting about Virginia Woolf's essay, 90 Years On. Uh, there is a theatrical production that is really exploring its ongoing relevance to issues of gender disparities. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Triple R. The show is Backstory and I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction, wrote Virginia Woolf back in 1929. The book, A Room of One's Own, explored her freedom, the freedom of the mind and the societal structures that suppressed women's creative and intellectual freedoms. Now, 90 years after Woolf's seminal essay, a sentient theatre production at 45 Downstairs again explores the relevance of many of the themes in the context of the media. Two movement, Time's Up and many, many other things that we are still continuing, unfortunately, to have to navigate. Joining me today to talk about the production and the work that inspired it is producer and performer Anna Kennedy and cast member Marissa O'Reilly. Uh, Anna and Marissa, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> now, I was, uh, I was kind of shocked when I sort of looked up the book again. I'd read it um, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, as many people have done, <laughs> I'm sure, in years before and since um, and was shocked then at the relevance to my own life and the lives of many others. Virginia Woolf was of course and owns this in the book an incredibly privileged woman of her time and even in fact of all time um, <laughs> given that having money in a room of one's own still remains somewhat out of the reach of many. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm really interested in how uh, this has been adapted for your production and, and what kind of themes are still being focused on. Um, perhaps, uh, Anna, you, I believe you're actually, uh, you're both cast members. Um, That's right. Perhaps, Anna, you could kick off with talking about how did this production come into being in the first place? Uh, so, Peter Hanrahan, the adapter director, um uh, started adapting the work about 10 years ago. Um, she, like you said, came across it in her 20s and it was um, something of a re- revelation for her as it has been for, I think, many other uh, people reading the book. And um, we happened to be at VCA at the same time and that's when we did a kind of, um, I guess, an exploration season of the work. Um, I happened to be cast as an actor and there were three other cast members. Um, and so there's four actors who play aspects of Virginia Woolf's mind in conversation with herself and the audience Um, and those aspects uh, kind of take up different I suppose traits in um, that we all kind of have in our own minds so there's the questioner the diplomat the skeptic and the world Uh, and then we presented the work again at La Mama in 2016 and now we're doing it again at 45 downstairs um, in next week Um, (laughs) And, yeah, those those aspects are kind of um, the way they sort of bounce off each other and um, try to explore these ideas and come to those points of understanding about the historical context um, uh, surrounding just being a woman, things like lack of access to education, um, just basic human rights um, that are still we're still fighting for in across the world um, and yeah so that's um, I guess what 
makes it still feel highly relevant, those kind of understanding the historical context that surrounds us as women. Mm. Marissa, you're a, a cast member and I think it's a really interesting thing, isn't it, when you're sort of, you know, working with material that I guess does have some kind of resonance for you. What what aspect of the, the play do you perform and, and what have you taken from it personally? Uh, I think for myself, I mean, I play the diplomat, so the person that comes in and speaks a sort of a calming voice um, for when you're sort of riled up in the discussion, you know, just sort of placing the opposition voice and and calming things a little. Um, Personally, every time we read it, there's a different line or a certain section that always resonates so deeply. Um, For me, it's always that discussion of um, how both male and females education is flawed in some sense and each of us has got some difficulty that we all have to overcome and and that yeah that resonates with me profoundly every time I I, I speak those words uh, but I think I think there's always something new that hits you because there is so so much beautiful prose in there and she's so eloquent in the way that she writes that it, I think it really hits you um, every time you hear it. Yeah, it's lovely. There is that kind of, you know, it, like, you know, Virginia Woolf is one of those great minds of, of literature <laughs> that you're really a genius where mm. you are, you know, uh, she explores things with such completeness that you, you know, the resonance is mm. undeniable, like beyond, I suppose, the period of time that she writes about. Yeah. But there are several things that are in there that, you know, I was really reminded of when I was, you know, preparing to, to chat with you today and things like, you know, there was a section where she talks about Shakespeare's sister and imagines, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I guess this parallel, um, but female um, person that could have been Shakespeare and and what then that person's life would have been like and it's a pretty dim (laughs) kind of life in comparison to the life of Shakespeare and of course now there are theorists that suggest that perhaps some of the stories were in fact (laughs) could potentially have been that of the mind of of someone within Shakespeare's circle who was in fact a woman but I think the idea is you know really thinking about this in a modern context and the fact that now we are challenging a lot of assumptions made about gender how has that kind of been covered um, within the context Context of this play, and and how do you feel, particularly with a lot of the modern movements, um, this this play really has achieved relevance. Well, there's there's one line in the um, in the play that I think really speaks to that, which is that um, to think of one sex as distinct from the other is an effort, and it interferes with the unity of the mind. And I think um, that really speaks to that gender binary, and um, that it's more important to be oneself than anything else um, which she talks a lot about throughout the work Um, and she really believed that you know the creative mind had to be free of those kind of gender constructs um, and that the most you know profound work could um, best be communicated by someone who wasn't um, I guess trapped by this these kind of gender ideas. Um, yeah, she so says a great a, a writer's mind is androgynous. You know, it has both the male and female essences in there. Um, mm. And that's um, you know one of the reasons why there is a, um, a male actor in the production. There's um, three women and one man, and that's about um, acknowledging the masculine and feminine aspects in in all of us. Um, and 
Yeah, and it's something that not everyone who sees the production um, necessarily, uh, it's not universally accepted that it's the best idea ever. And so it's really interesting to hear people's um, experiences of that and some people really resonate with it. So, yeah, but it definitely feels like we are making that acknowledgement that it's not as simple as, you know, male, female, man, woman. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking uh, with uh, a couple of uh, people who are involved in uh, new production. Oh, actually, it's not a new production. It's a production that has been staged before back in 2016, a production uh, based on Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, uh, which remains highly relevant. Um, Anna Kennedy and Marissa O'Reilly are both a part of that production and uh, we're talking about the ongoing relevance of this book uh, and some of the ideas that Virginia Woolf holds. I have to say Virginia Woolf's book Orlando was always a a really (laughs) big favourite of mine and that Mm. is one where, you know, she imagines a character that begins life um, as, you know, as a man and and then is transformed, also lives for several centuries um, (laughs) and is transformed into a woman and the experiences that then that person goes through. In many ways, these kind of, this sort of um, fictional representation of, of, you know, like of a mind, you know, fleeing Mm. the constraints of both time and gender is, yeah. you know, very much, you know, implicit in a lot of Virginia Woolf's work. And it's something that I've started to ponder a little bit more as I, you know, as time goes on about some of those things that, you know, when women were very much just struggling for basic rights, uh, didn't get the sort of opportunity to to kind of contemplate. Mm. Do you feel like, and this is a question for both or either of you, do you feel like now that um, you know, I guess we are still facing a lot of gender-based challenges and I guess we do live in an extremely privileged country yeah. in that <laughs> respect. But do you feel as though we're now at that stage where we can start to sort of push back um, to be recognised as people first? Mm. Well, I, as, as you said, we, we are very privileged here in Australia and, um, I mean, I, I was just watching an interview with Malala Yousafzai the other day and all of her points for the cause that she's always been fighting for, women's education, girls' education, um, and she seemed to go through all the points that Virginia Woolf speaks of in A Room of One's Own and it just it hit me how relevant it still is and how sometimes we can forget that many women don't have the same privileges that we do, um, that we have here in Australia, um, but also that... It's still fairly recent that, yes, I mean, uh, white women in Australia have had the right to vote and a lot more privilege for a longer period of time. But um, for our Aboriginal sisters and and women of colour, it's been only since the 60s or so, um, 70s even, that that Mm. those rights have started to come to them. So I think, you know, we're making those steps. but it always comes down to that inclusion of the masculine because the patriarchy is also, you know, it's not very good for men either. So mm. it's it's the balance that we're sort of aiming to achieve. Mm. I think there's one thing that, you know, obviously the structural stuff that, um, that Virginia Woolf kind of really touches on, she owns within the context of the book that she has money mm. to be able to do these things and that is her freedom, is that she has you know, financial independence, that remains something that is somewhat of a struggle. And I would ask you as well, perhaps, Anna, you can talk about this, but many of us who work in the arts um, really understand that that getting by or the ability to even support oneself to do do this job that society 
you know, deemed so necessary. That's informed political movements. That is a part of the fabric of what makes life worthwhile. Is a struggle without money. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember very clearly sort of thinking maybe within six months of being at drama school that um, I was just going to resign myself to a life of financial insecurity so that I could do what I love, which is sharing stories that I think are important um, and that can contribute to change in people and then hopefully wider society. Um, And I would just find a way to do that without... um, uh, the kind of financial security that other people in other professions might um, be able to access more quickly. But um, I do have to also acknowledge that um, in my work as a producer, I've then um, been very fortunate to start working full-time at Regional Arts Victoria. Um, so I do have a level of security in in my career in the arts that um, many, many of my peers who um, are practicing more regularly as creatives within projects certainly don't have um and there's so many i could go into so much detail about kind of bigger questions about how it all trickles down from you know funding and then not-for-profit organizations and then to artists um and you know the role of administrators within within that context too as supporters but also um how perhaps the it would be better in a lot of ways if artists were able to kind of lead um, and have more security to be able to do that um, fearlessly and produce work that um, is is really able to challenge um, and excite uh, change. Mm. And I think, you know, financial insecurity is a great barrier to that because, you know, when we think about the work that is um, quite often programmed on our main stages, it's not necessarily um, in its content attempting to um, shift things politically in the way that other, Mm. um, you know, more independent work might do. There's something kind of psychological as well as this idea of a room of your own, Mm -hmm. you know, a room to think, having space from Mm. others and other ideas and oppressive structures to actually be able to do something. How how important do you still think it is to have that uh, artistic space and, and, you know, a literal space as well? Yeah. Oh, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, going back to the text, she says intellectual freedom is dependent upon material things. And I think we've just, you know, Anna's clearly said how how that struggle for the daily life of the financial independence can sometimes compromise your artistic focus. And, um, yeah, I think Australia needs to get behind the artists a bit more maybe. I don't know, I've... I've, I've travelled through Europe and there's a great respect that they hold for their artists over there and um, it's not dismissed in the way that we we do so here in Australia so I'm not sure something to to consider. (laughs) Do you still feel like uh, you know as in um, I guess Virginia Woolf's construction that the endeavours of women in particular Mm. are less regarded are still less regarded in the arts or do you think that's shifting do you think we're starting to see a bit more of a of representation across genders across you know and obviously other um, intersectional groups that we're were maybe not as well covered let's be <laughs> honest Virginia Woolf was very much a creature of her times yeah. and she had some very deep biases as well um, so there are many voices not really considered within the context Mm. of this essay. Mm. I I definitely think it's shifting um, and I've witnessed um, I guess the 
people in power feeling uh, that they are now responsible for demonstrating that they are aligned with, um, you know, the politics of not only equality but equity. Um, and that's really exciting, but I think it would be um, short-sighted to become complacent about it because... Um, in some ways it feels like it will never be good enough mm. um, and it really relies on people who are um, have less power to be the driving forces behind that change. Um, and it's something that has occurred to me is that, it's, and this is especially true in, uh, I suppose, in, in media and publishing um, as well, that actually people are being paid far less. So even if you're starting to see representation, there's a lot of people who are really badly paid mm. um, who may be, you know, uh, like really representing particular particular marginal marginalised groups. Um, it might be seen as uh, a wonderful thing to have them there, but they may be being paid very poorly and perhaps worse than ever. <laughs> and, and over-consulted mm, and kind of relied yeah, upon exactly. to be, you know, a mouthpiece for, you know, a particular group that they happen to be part of but are also an individual within that group with their own politics and opinions and beliefs. Um, so it would be, you know, wonderful if, again, we could all just... Um, you know, think of things in themselves and just be oneself and be free of all of those constructs. But that's a very idealistic um, view and it does take a lot of work um, for, for all of us um, to help keep that shift moving and not become complacent about it. Well, I think it's definitely the role of art to be doing some of that heavy yeah. lifting as well. And it sounds like uh, Virginia Woolf's book, though it is 90 years old, um, is still highly relevant. Uh, I'd love you to both tell me a little bit um, about, we, we're nearly running out of time, <laughs> some of the details about how people can, can come along and see this performance. Absolutely. Uh, so we're on at 45 Downstairs, uh, previewing on the 17th of July, which is next Wednesday, um, and we'll be open from the 18th to the 28th of July. And we also have a regional tour, um, so anyone that might be in Hamilton, Horsham, Bendigo, Traugan, Sale, Wodonga or um, Frankston uh, can come and uh, check it out on the Regional Arts Victoria website and um, find out our tour dates from there. Oh, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory to talk about this work that um, that obviously has continuing relevance and uh, and the wonderful mind that has managed to kind of uh, readapt it for a modern audience. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anna and Marissa. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Uh, that was uh, Anna Kennedy and Marissa O'Reilly talking about a. 45 Downstairs um, production by Sentient Theatre um, that has been based on Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, 90 years on and still sadly relevant. Uh, I definitely recommend getting along to see that. And I'd also like to thank my earlier guest, Amra um, Pajalic, um, who came in to talk about her book, um, a memoir that talked about her life growing up uh, in a Bosnian-Australian family and grappling with her mother's uh, mental health. Three Triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. 
I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.